I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. The government to California, broken hearts and parts unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio I got so many beats on Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars When the England team fly to the World Cup, an ancient ritual will start to unfold perfected over England's previous failures to win the World Cup away from home. It follows this pattern. Phase 1. Pre-tournament. Certainty that England will win the World Cup. Phase 2. During the tournament, England meet a former wartime enemy. Phase 3. The English conclude that the game turned on one freakish piece of bad luck that could happen only to them. Phase 4. Moreover, Everyone else cheated. Phase 5. England are knocked out without getting anywhere near lifting the cup. Phase 6. The day after elimination, normal life resumes. Phase 7. A scapegoat is found. Phase 8. England enter the next World Cup thinking they will win it.
At Mr Redwood's stately pace, the cortege turned onto Barking Road. It was the route Billy had taken almost every day for half a century, ending at Coral, a bookmaker, where the hearse stopped. The manager of the betting shop stepped onto the pavement, and in a gesture that seemed to encapsulate the florid theatricality of the East End funeral, where Victorian music hall meets Catholic high mass, she handed Tracy a single white rose. The mourners then clambered aboard, and the cortege set off at the 30 miles per hour speed limit. But it was not fast enough for a couple of bikers who roared past on the inside. Foreigners, probably, muttered Paul Top, an old-timer at Cribs, driving the lead limousine. You'd not have seen that years ago. Everyone used to stop, bow their heads, take off their hats. There's no respect now.
with it. Don't eyeball it. Don't comment on how it's plated like a pagoda or a Zen garden. Don't detail the 39 steps it took to make it. Don't start comparing it to the meal you had at El Bouli. And don't complain about the new chef while alternately giving me his culinary CV. I don't want to hear it. I just want to eat it. I love food as much as the next person. I like food the way Homer likes his donuts. But a food snob, I am not. You'll never find me asking whether my Copper River salmon was gill-netted and bled and dressed on sight. I'll never lift a fiddlehead fern and wax rhapsodic about hunting the Zen Mai in East Asia during a trip with Anthony Bourdain. I'll fork that fern and put it where it belongs, my belly. Don't put nettle pasta on a pedestal. Put it in your pie hole. After all, it's food. You're supposed to eat it, not dissect it.
that day, I began to be incredulous. Or rather, I regretted having been credulous. I regretted having allowed myself to be borne away by a passion of the mind. Such is credulity. Not that the incredulous person doesn't believe in anything. It's just that he doesn't believe in everything. Or he believes in one thing at a time. He believes a second thing only if it somehow follows from the first thing. He is nearsighted and methodical, avoiding wide horizons. If two things don't fit, but you believe both of them, thinking that somewhere hidden there must be a third thing that connects them, that's credulity. Incredulity doesn't kill curiosity, it encourages it. Though distrustful of logical chains of ideas, I love the polyphony of ideas. As long as you don't believe in them, the collision of two ideas, both false, can create a pleasing interval, a kind of diabolus in musica. I had no respect for some ideas people were willing to stake their lives on, but two or three ideas that I did not respect might still make a nice melody, or have a good beat, and if it was jazz, all the better.
the boutique approach can sometimes feel like another form of irritating unctuousness. The third age of hotels may be a mere fad, destined to be much shorter than their industrial age. Perhaps in the end, the boutiques will themselves multiply and ossify into sterile chains. But there is another way to see them in the future of hotels. In the industrial era, hotels were rigid autocracies, reproduced by rote and stratified by income. Now, they are arguably involving into communities of like-minded folk who, at least for a few nights, live in a system that transcends nationality and responds to who they are, or who they would like to be. Unlike most communities, hotels are temporary, absolving guests of responsibility or the need for personal consistency. In the future, the hotel may offer neither bland uniformity nor authentic warmth, but a proliferating number of experimental worlds in which to insert yourself. Who do you want to be next time you hand over your passport and check in? Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. I got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear Been saved again by the garbage truck I got something to say, you know But nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me You never shut up Yeah, I can hear that But what if I'm a mermaid In these jeans of his With her name still on it hey, But I don't care Sometimes I said, sometimes I hear my voice And it's been years Silent all these years So you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts What's so amazing about really deep thoughts? Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon How's that thought for you? My screen got lost in a paper cup I think there's a heaven where some screams have gone I got 25 bucks and a cracker Do you think it's enough to get us there? Cause what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with her name still on it hey but i don't care cause sometimes i said sometimes i hear my voice and it's been he Your mother shows up in a nasty dress 
presence Your turn now to stand Where I stand Everybody looking at you You take hold of my hand Yeah, I can hear them But what if I'm a mermaid In these jeans of yours With her name still on it hey, But I don't care Cause sometimes I said Sometimes I hear my voice I hear my voice, I hear my voice And it's been here Silent all these years I've been here Silent all these years Silent all these silent all these years Cleckley's clinical profile and his listing of 16 qualities characteristic of psychopathic individuals can also be considered. Superficial charm and good intelligence. Absence of delusions and other signs of irrational thinking. Absence of nervousness or psychoneurotic manifestations. Unreliability, untruthfulness and insincerity. Lack of remorse and shame inadequately motivated antisocial behavior, poor judgment and failure to learn by experience, pathologic egocentricity, and incapacity for love, general poverty in major affective reactions, specific loss of insight, unresponsiveness in general interpersonal relations, fantastic and uninviting behavior with drink and sometimes without, suicide threats rarely carried out, Sex life impersonal, trivial, and poorly integrated. Failure to follow any life plan.
I say, Skinner's extrapolations from his experiments, that we have no free will, that we are ruled only by reinforcers. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Hagen asks. Well, I say, I don't absolutely rule out the possibility that we are always either controlled or controlling, that our free will is really just a response to some cues that, before I can finish my sentence, Kagan dives under his desk. I'm under my desk, he shouts. I've never gotten under my desk before. Is this not an act of free will? Well, I say, and suddenly my hands feel cold with fear. I guess it could be an act of free will, or it could be that you've... Again, Kagan won't let me finish. His voice rises, disembodied. There is no way you can explain my being under this desk right now as anything but an act of free will. Oh 
The occasion was a speed date. Twenty or so hopeful boys and girls had gathered together for an evening whose format is growing increasingly familiar. Everyone got a name badge, a pen, a list of check boxes, and a large drink. The women took their seats at small tables dotted around the room. The host, a rep from the speed dating company that organized the event, rang a little bell, prompting all the men to hurry to their assigned dates, which lasted all of three minutes. When the time was up, the bell rang again. The daters shook hands, or, if brave, gave each other a peck on the cheek. And the men hopped to the next table and the next woman. Half an hour later, everybody had met everybody else and ticked date or no date for each name on his or her list.
Lavishly tattooed, many earringed, and exasperated coach driver is cleaning up an unidentified fluid from the floor of his vehicle. His passengers, an already boozy group of rugby supporters, are on their way to London for a match. Northern and Southerners commingle with the classes. The M1 motorway is the main road link between England's post industrial north and the more prosperous south. The consensus among the regulars is that Northerners are nicer. Any ladies in your life? A woman selling American makeup calls to passing men. We're from California, she claims, not altogether convincingly. Later, she admits to being from Nottingham. After a broad exposure to people travelling in both directions, her main inference is that Londoners are rushed and grumpy. A catering worker agrees. Northerners have time for a chat, she says. Southerners do not.
Even if you have reached a stage in your career in which you feel safe from the rise of the new machines, how will your children thrive when computers can outthink, outwork, and outmanage them? What do they study? Where do they focus? And will they have any chance of living a life as good as yours? At work, how should your company be structured when so much can now be automated? What will happen to all those middle-class, middle-management knowledge jobs that currently stand as the economic bedrock of our society? These are all good questions, the right questions, for indeed something very big is going on. The rise of artificial intelligence is the great story of our time. Decades in the making, the smart machine is leaving the laboratory and, with increasing speed, is infusing itself into many aspects of our lives. Our phones, our cars, the planes we fly in, the way we bank, and the way we choose what music to listen to.
The Supreme Court building is an awe-inspiring sight. Many a visitor each year is stopped in his or her tracks by the grandeur and solemnity of the white marble staircase and the soaring inscription on the court's facade, Equal Justice Under Law, an inspiring and profound image of permanence and continuity the court stands as a symbol of our commitment as a society to the rule of law. It stands for our founding fathers' uniquely American vision of an independent judiciary in which judges and the court would stand alone, independent, and not beholden to the will of political majorities in their interpretation of the laws and the Constitution.
is doubtful if the Germans could have mustered the 20,000 parachutists that the British government feared. The Kriegsmarine did not have any special landing craft at the time, and its commander, Admiral Eric Raider, did not consider that a seaborne invasion was remotely feasible, while General Alfred Jodl, deputy to Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, head of the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, OBW, the high command of the German armed forces, advised Hitler that invasion should only be contemplated when Britain was paralyzed and practically incapable of fighting in the air. On the 12th of October, Hitler postponed Operation Sea Lion, the planned invasion of Britain, and in January 1941, effectively cancelled it. But at the time, of course, no one in Britain could be sure that this was the case, and that the Blitz was not the final softening up prior to an invasion. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.